1: Hello, welcome back to another Christmas special from The Delicious Legacy, the world's most scrumptious archaeogastronomical podcast out there. Join me for another adventure in the tastiest recipes from the past out there. And again, since it's Christmas, we are going to check some uh, traditional Greek recipes and a short history of Christmas in Byzantium and Constantinople. Merry Christmas to everyone, and I hope you have a lovely festive period. Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, and uh, if you're feeling festive, cozy, and Christmassy, then why not join the delicious Legacy on Patreon. From $3 a month, you get all the podcasts, early and ad-free, with extra content, and a wealth of information, and recipes, and extra musings, And many other goodies. So yeah. Join us on Patreon. And make your Christmas and mine even better. Your support means a lot to me. And with more patrons. It means I can dedicate more time. To create better content for you guys. Plus create videos more often. And exclusive for you. And so now without further ado. Let's uh, go to our special episode about Christmas. On this one. I've got it in three parts, more or less, where, uh, we, where we're going to see my childhood memories of Christmas and our traditions. Christmas in Byzantium, in Constantinople, in the palace, in the Emperor's palace. And you will also have some amazing recipes from uh, Greece, traditional Christmassy recipes from north of Greece and one from Corfu. For those of you in Patreon, I'm going to uh, write the recipes down and post them as posts on Patreon, so you can have them, and uh, you can print them or use them while you're cooking. Because I know, obviously, I'm explaining the recipe step by step, but, um, yeah, I think it's going to be better if you have them written down. And now, enjoy our episode. Uh, so, on that note, I've combined this episode with um, some um, elements from previous years, where I talk about traditional stuff from uh, my area and my my Christmas as a kid growing up. So yeah, let's um, get on with today's episode. There's always a Lent in the Greek Orthodox calendar. I did talk a lot about the Easter Lent in previous episodes, which is the most important one, to be honest, in the Orthodox calendar. But... Even before Christmas, this big happy celebration for Christianity, there is one Lent too. This lasts for 40 days. My grandmother, the daughter of a priest, used to fast the whole period. I, on the other hand, never lasted that long. For those of you you who don't know or who are new to the podcast or haven't listened to the one about Easter... The Lenten period is generally a period of abstinence from meat, fish, dairy, like milk, butter, cheese and eggs. And so whenever I've tried fast, usually I only manage a week or two at the maximum. Who can live without cheese for that long? Or alternatively, someone might complain that, oh, you're so spoiled nowadays, you have everything... Back in my day, we used to eat just stale bread and water. Anyway, I digress from my subject, which is Christmas food and Christmas uh, holidays and um, these festive uh, celebratory dishes. Anyway, I always try to do some Lent, fast a little bit, for a little while, like a week or two. Not because I'm pious or religious or even for diet and health reasons, But because I am just really greedy when holiday season comes, when Christmas comes, I want to be able to eat all the food, stuff my face with everything on the table. I want to be eating non-stop from 24th of December until the 6th of January. There's so many foods to be eaten! The Greek festive table is a cornucopia of tantalizing dishes, a feast. And it's not merely this on the 25th. This is the norm for 12 days over the Christmas period. So, let me tell you a little bit about my childhood Christmas. The stuff we used to do with my family, my extended family, grandfather, uncles and all. The sight of a porker carcass hung upside down with head and all never filled me with any dread or disgust. It just always meant a delicious charcoal roast was on its way the next day. Our Christmas feast. A party meal for all. Yes, our mothers and sisters would be a bit upset with the face of the animal. That was the main point of uh, content between uh, the men of the family and the women and the girls. (laughs) It always felt uh, a bit yucky for them. It looked too real, too gruesome. But we would never have the animal without the head. The elders always used to say, a decapitated animal is very bad luck. So off it went, the whole animal, to the spit, true nose to tail eating, way before the fancy, expensive London restaurants discovered the concept. We all have certain persistent memories from our festive family gatherings, don't we? Sometimes good, sometimes... mm, a bit iffy, let's say. And, um, yeah... Some of uh, us have um, all these uh, burnt turkeys and or semi-frozen turkeys that never cooked and so on. No, 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 not in my family at all. Um, Christmas was way too important to be left um, in chance or to have uh, a failure in the kitchen or on the barbecue for that matter. Everything was very strategically organized and with precision and effort from all parts involved. I know as we get older, we perhaps tend to over-romanticize the years of our childhood and get this warm and fuzzy feeling when we recall them, don't we? And um, yeah, I don't want to make it overly too perfect or too sweet and sickly sweet. Our Christmas were amazing as kids and so on. But um, even when Christmas were filled with screams and sounds and big family arguments and rouse, I do still get a little bit nostalgic when this time of the year comes around, almost always um, try to have fun. In my mind, the most indelible picture of Christmas holidays, from my childhood, was the day before 25th, the Christmas Eve, but during the daytime for us, in my hometown of area in northern Greece, outside, in my grandmother's yard. garden with my dad, my uncles and the army of male cousins usually, preparing the animals for the following day's feast. That was of course the celebration, 25th and 24th was the preparation. And that was equally as fun and amazing for us. It's a day that all the cousins and all the uncles will um, gather together to my grandfather's house. First time during the first um, semester of school I wouldn't have seen them for three months or so so that would be amazing and have fun all together and so on so we are are outside in the yard and I know Greece and outdoors might mislead you my dear listeners and you think oh such a pleasant time, pleasant activities and fun, ta 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 but I can assure you that at the end of December, in mainland North Greece, the winters are bitter, cold and miserable. And that was especially true back before the catastrophic climate change uh, got hold of our winters. Of course now there are winters even more unpredictable and each one is more weird than the previous. So sometimes it's really cold, sometimes just wet, sometimes the weather is almost summery. But this was our time. It was the men's time. Primal and important. It felt like the time we were bonding as a family as well. My granddad giving instructions. My dad and his brothers, my uncles. And me and the male cousins. Listening and preparing. And grabbing stuff. All of us doing some important work. We, the younger generation, the next masters, learning the secrets of barbecue. The secrets of speed roast and the juiciest most succulent hog in town, while having fun over the preparation of the animals. As I said most importantly, it was the place to bond. Cousins become friends. Of a similar age, those days would shape our mindset, our lust for conviviality, our desire to spend all of our free hours cooking and sharing the bounty of the fire pit with those who we love the most. We also connected with our roots, with our ancestors, with our grandfathers in the mountains, and the rebels who lived wild lives on those unconquered mountain tops of Greece in the past centuries, well, <laughs> that's what we thought, and that's what we pretended it was true anyway. That was what we were doing. We would have had one or two hogs, depending on how many family members were planning to be around. So those were hung by their back feet on, from the roof of a shed on makeshift hooks. Perhaps in addition, we would have. Also, a goat kid or a lamb, too, for the sake of keeping everyone's taste satisfied and for a bit of variety. First step would be to remove the precious innards and keep them, carefully keeping them for the infamous offal kebab called cocoretsi. Then we would proceed by cinching the skin of the pork, of the pig, with a very DIY contraption made with cotton wrapped around a handheld mini souvla. Like a metal skewer, a long metal skewer, doused in alcohol, and then set alight to remove any hairs. And lastly, on this first part of uh, the process was washing of the carcass with a hose uh, to remove any remaining hairs and all that malarkey. So these carefully choreographed rituals, with specific steps taken the same way year after year, the spits, souvlas, as we call them in Greece, were, pre- were then prepared. Soaped, scrubbed, cleaned with vinegar and hot water. The animal was then put on the spit. From the back through the inside of the belly and out through the neck and carefully again through the head. One could hear the gentle crack of the skull. The minimal hole on the forehead. I know it's gruesome and shocking and perhaps too much information here. But nevertheless, it was another skill we had to acquire. Precision and specific amount of power and strength was needed too much and the whole head would crack in two. Too little and obviously you wouldn't get through through with a pointy end of the skewer. Then carefully tied on with wire and prongs protruding the meat and keeping the back legs together. Next was the seasoning. On our pork chain friend, we did a generous mixture of salt, pepper, oregano, garlic and lemon slices. And then season the insides and then skew the belly with a massive needle and thick butcher string. We'd let the spit roasts in this dry inside-out marinade for about 12 hours, to really soak up the flavours. They were kept in a secure place, of course. Like a larder, in an ambient temperature, horizontally, as when they would be when on the spit cooking. Yes, it was outside, in a larder, no fridge, but it was winter, after all. And especially at night, the temperature could drop really low. I do not recall ever having anything going wrong with that um, process or questioning whether we needed to buy a walk-in fridge to keep the meat uh, safe and fresh. One could easily imagine that we were feeling damaged and exhausted after a whole day out in the cold weather, carrying heavy barbecues from the basement the buried treasures from last year, unearthing and revealing stories of past revelry. Washing with cold water the animals and freeze our little hands off. But for the most part, it was pleasure, pure joy and ecstasy. The feeling of belonging, I guess. Part game, part serious, and of course the transformation of the raw materials and the space itself to something worth celebrating about. All were playing an important role here. And here we were, in a small corner of the old town of Veria, and we defeated the elements and adverse conditions, and had fun. Those festive days, including Christmas Day and fun we had, now I feel that they are all stored in one place in time, separate from the rest of the chaotic memories, recollections from our childhood that seem to surround our hazy heads. These are kept safe and secure, always there to comfort me. No matter how bad things can be, when I close my eyes and I'm there, in my yaya's house, no one can reach us. These memories are protected from any harm. I'm sure the shenanigans of uh, Christmas days are all too familiar to most of you. The drunken dancing and non-stop eating is similar to all cultures I believe, um, just um, yeah, the season varies. Of course uh, the barbecue ritual here isn't a quick steak and sausages type of thing although both were welcomed and included in the early stages of the day. This gave us uh, stamina to continue. This, as you understand, is a slow affair, requiring patience, grit, deep knowledge of the charcoal, the fire, and its capricious character, which needs to be controlled and adjusted even after we had a couple of glasses and I put a couple of glasses in air quotation marks of... uh, the local grappa, we call it Cipuro, the distilled spirit made from, um, from grapes after you make wine, which uh, we consumed of course to warm up our cockles in the morning, it's cold outside, for no other reason, believe me. On average we were out there in the cold crisp winter morning and um, the contrasting heat of the pit for about 7-8 hours perhaps. And of course, I'm not going to bore you with the details here about the fire and everything else. After all, there are so many programs out there about pitmasters and barbecue and how to do your own fire. Let's just say most of us, most of the time, we would fight over the tastier, first cooked parts of the spit roast. And if you can guess what it is, usually it was the testicles. Or alternatively, the bit of meat at the back legs when the bones started to split and the skin was very very crunchy. But the Greek Christmas doesn't end there. One didn't persevere with the Lent for forty days. okay, none of us did to be honest, uh, to just get one day of feasting. It hardly seems a fair exchange. No, there's more, a lot more, a lot more to come back to my immediate family's home, i.e. my mum, dad, brother, me, and our other yaya, there's a lot more wholesome cooked food waiting. Both mum and grandma can't help themselves but cook a mountain of food as if we haven't eaten for decades. and, Or, alternatively, if we are waiting for a long-lost family to appear, numbering 50 members or so. Classic Greek family. But... um. Once the spit rolls are ready and, and um, it's time to eat, we will eat for lunch, let's say, up in grandmother's house, the whole extended family, and then we'll take the remains, go back home and eat dinner again with uh, the um, moms and the rest of the family or different family members from the other side of the family. Now, the celebratory dishes um, that Yaya's and moms made at home are many. And pork is the main meat, as I said, and there are countless dishes with it. The reason, traditionally, and more to do with uh, all the time, was wh- what we call *urunohara*, which is the most popular tradition in most regions of Greece, or pig joy, and takes place around Christmas. This is the slaughter of the pig, which has been fattening for a year, and traditionally, there has always been a time of uh, revelry. Not that the pig uh, was joyous with the prospect of uh, its sacrifice, uh, this is certain, but a joy for the village folk. The felled animal uh, will be savoured all winter long, usually as the only source of meat. Traditionally, of course, right? Hence the tradition calls for pork on Christmas day, either whole on the spit, as as my family did, or cooked in uh, various different ways. Another thing is uh, called Christopsomo, which is a festive spiced bread, Made at Christmas time, of course, and traditionally eaten on Christmas Eve, it was always made with the most expensive ingredients: highly sifted white flour, sesame seeds, and a spice mixture such as aniseed, orange, bay, cinnamon, and cloves. On top are the dishes that are a must and adorn every festive dinner table: are stuffed cabbage leaves, which I'm going to give you a nice recipe from Corfu, either with veals, mince, and spices, and a thicker for lemon sauce or with uh, pork mince, pork tenderloin cooked with chestnuts and apricots, a capon or cockerel stuffed with Swiss chard, rice and wild fennel, a mountains of nut and honey syrup-soaked cookies called melomakarona, and curabiedes, another dessert with almond shortbread type biscuit, related to numerous Middle Eastern biscuits known as curabilla, uh, found in the Ottoman Empire and even older in the Persian cuisine, and countless pies. Of course, savory meaty ones for New Year's Eve, eaten late around midnight just before we go out for an all-nighter. Or sweet cake like pies for New Year's Day lunch. Vasilopita, which is prepared for Saint Vasilius Vasilis, our version, the Greek version of Santa Claus, with a coin inside hidden, and whoever got a piece with a coin gets good luck for the year. So this, my dear listener, in a very roundabout way was part of my childhood Christmas memories and part of the tradition the Greek traditions of Christmas that I wanted to bring you all along on this episode now for the next part enjoy some excellent traditional recipes for Christmas and New Year's there is um, the shepherd's meat pie which is made uh... Up in the mountains of all over Epirus, which is in northwest Greece. And uh, this is um, made with lamb and phyllo pastry. In uh, places in, like Thessalia, which is uh, central Greece, this is made with pork or rabbit. Uh, up in uh, where I'm from, uh, we use beef and leek. And uh, yeah, and yeah, on all of this you can insert a coin for good luck actually, just like Vasilopita. In the island of Lesbos, there's a very skilled, highly complicated phyllo-making pie, a traditional sweet and savory pie, which is has consecutive layers of phyllo, uh, which give the unique pie um, the festive character. And this is for New Year's, uh, cheese and spice New Year's pie from Lesbos. And uh, for this, obviously, you make the phyllo with uh, fennel seeds and flour and baking powder and salt and sugar and olive oil and butter. And the filling is kefalotiri cheese, mezithra cheese, you have uh, fresh ginger, you have ground cloves, you have ground cinnamon, freshly grated nutmeg, ground old spice, and, and you garnish it. Obviously, you have um, sesame seeds to garnish it, and you, yeah, you bake it like this. Um, another incredible recipe here. Now it's time for a traditional Greek uh, recipe, Christmas recipe. And this is a sweet uh, that we do, that every household do during Christmas. And this is the melomakarona, Basically, uh, syrup-drenched nut and spice cookies. And this recipe is from Peloponnese, and it's made with olive oil rather than uh, butter or margarine or other disgusting oils. So, for this, we make the cookies. So, we have a dough and make, we make a syrup which we then, after we cook the cookies, we put them into the syrup. Okay, for the syrup you need one cup of sugar, one cup of honey, half a cup of water, one medium cinnamon stick and one wide strip of lemon zest. For the cookies, and this will give you 40 to 50 cookies, uh, you need three to three and a half cups of all-purpose flour, one teaspoon of baking powder, one teaspoon of ground cinnamon, half a teaspoon of ground cloves, one cup of extra virgin olive oil, Half a cup of sugar, half a teaspoon of baking soda, half a cup of fresh orange juice, a quarter of a cup brandy, like metaxa, for example, that we have in Greece, and one cup of chopped walnuts, and then uh, the zest of one orange, grated. There are a few different variations on how to make it, to make them, but first make the syrup. So bring the sugar, honey and water to boil in a medium-sized saucepan. Add the cinnamon and lemon zest and simmer over medium heat for 10 minutes. Let it cool completely. For the cookies, sift together 3 cups of the flour, the baking powder, cinnamon and cloves in a small bowl and set aside. In a large bowl, beat the olive oil with the sugar until creamy. Stir in the baking soda into the citrus juice and add the oil and sugar mixture. Add the brandy, walnuts and grated zest and continue mixing vigorously until combined. Slowly add the flour to the mixture, beating vigorously with a wooden spoon until a stiff dough forms. Preheat the oven uh, to 160 degrees Celsius. Lightly oil two large baking sheets. One at a time, break off pieces of dough the size of a, of a big walnut and shape into a small mounted oblongs. Place one inch apart on the baking sheet and bake until lightly browned, so about 20 minutes. Remove from the oven and submerge in the cooled syrup to soak for a few minutes. Drain them, if that's desired, on racks and then sprinkle on top some finely pounded walnut crumb. And they are delicious, trust me.
0: I'll
1: be back. Ludprand, bishop of Cremona, who visited Constantinople, acting as ambassador to Berengarius, region of Lombardy, in 949 AD, was a young man, not at all practiced diplomat, and he had been deliberately starved of funds by his own monarch. But he was welcomed as a friend at the palace of the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. Ludprand describes one of the entertainments at Christmas dinner at the palace as thus A man came in carrying on his head without using his hands A wooden pole 24 feet or more long A foot and a half from the top had a crosspiece 3 feet wide Then two boys appeared naked except for loincloths around their middles Who went up the pole, did various tricks on it and then came down headfirst keeping the pole all the time as steady as though it were rooted in the earth. When one had come down, the other remained on the pole and performed by himself. That filled me with even greater astonishment and admiration. While they were both performing, their feet seemed barely possible. For, wonderful as it was, the evenness of their weight kept the pole up, which they climbed balanced. But then one remained at the top and kept the balance so accurately, that he could both do his tricks and come down again without mishap. I was so bewildered that the emperor himself noticed my astonishment. He therefore called an interpreter and asked me which seemed to be the more amazing, the boy who had moved so carefully that the pole remained firm or the man who had so deftly balanced it on his head that neither the boy's weight nor the performance had disturbed it in the least. I replied that I did not know which I thought Thavmastoteron or more amazing, and he burst into a loud laugh and he said he was in the same case. He did not know either. There are no fewer than four descriptions, extending chronologically over three centuries, of how the Emperor and his guests dined in the house of the 19 couches on Christmas Day itself. The first description is a theoretical one, it forms part of the Book of Ceremonies, whose compiler was Yudbrand's host on the occasion we described above. Here, we are told of the procession in which the Emperor was conducted from Saint Sophia to the palace. We are told, with that foulsome acclaim, the monarch was greeted on this special day by those who attended him at dinner, and we find confirmation that his guests would include people from beyond the Empire including Frankie or Franks for you and I, and Agharini, or Arabs. But we are not told what went on in the dining hall, unfortunately. In the second description, who f- comes from Yurt uh, one on, on the first of his visits, uh, as we've seen above, he describes us the tricks and the dance and um, the tricks with the, with the long poles. He also tells us by that time the practice of reclining at dinner had become exceptional even at the palace. On the day when our Lord Jesus Christ was born in the flesh, 19 covers are always laid here at the table. The emperor and his guests, on this occasion, do not sit at a table, as they usually do, but recline on couches, and everything is served in vessels, not of silver, but of gold. And after the solid food, fruit is brought on three golden bowls. Which are too heavy for men to lift, and come in on carriers covered over with purple cloth. Two of them are put on the table in the following way. Through openings in the ceiling hang three ropes covered with gilded leather and furnished with golden rings. These rings are attached to the handles projecting from the balls, and with four or five men helping from below, they are swung on to the table by means of a movable device in the ceiling and removed again by the same fashion. Now, slightly earlier than this description, we have the narrative of the Syrian hostage Harun ibn Yahya. And he spent one Christmas dinner in 911 as a guest to the emperor. He tells us this is what happens at Christmas. He sends for the Muslim captives, and they are seated at these tables. When the emperor is seated at his golden table, they bring him four gold dishes, each of which is brought on his own little chariot. One of these dishes, encrusted with pearls and rubies, they say belonged to Solomon, son of David, the second, similarly encrusted to David, the third to Alexander, and the fourth to Constantine. They are placed before the emperor, and no one else may eat from them. They remain there while the emperor is at table. When he rises, they are taken away. Then, for the Muslims, many hot and cold dishes are placed on the other tables, and the imperial herald announces. I swear on the emperor's head that there's no pork at all on these dishes. The dishes on the large silver and gold platters are then served to the emperor's guests. Then they bring what is called an organon. It's a remarkable wooden object like an oil press and covered with solid leather. Sixty copper pipes are placed in it so they can project above the leather and where they are visible above the leather they are gilded. You can only see a small part of some of them, as they are of different lengths. On one side of this structure, there is a hole in which they place a bellows like a blacksmith. Three crosses are placed at the two extremities, and in the middle of the organ. Two men come in to work the bellows, and the master stands and begins to press on the pipes. And each pipe, according to its tuning and the master's playing, sounds the praise of the emperor. The guests are meanwhile seated at the tables, and twenty men enter with cymbals in their hands. The music continues while the guests continue their meal. On another description, it tells us that on the ninth day of Christmas, the emperor would be entertained at dinner in the house of the nineteen couches with traditional Gothic songs and dances, which are all carefully set out with accompanying translations in the Book of Ceremonies, compiled under the direction of the emperor Constantine Seventh, Porphyrogenitus. All this is well and good, but it doesn't tell us much about the food. What we have about food, from Theodore Prodromus, is the following advice for December. December. I hunt hares, festival food from the wild. I fill my dishes with tasty partridges. and I celebrate the feast of the Nativity, the greatest feast of the Word of God. Take generously of all foods, I say, and reject the melancholy cabbage. This is the only dietary manual that drags the festival of Christmas. Venison, beef, hare, kid, wild boar, wild goat and gazelle and all game birds, said Hierophilus the sophist in the 10th century, are ideal for a December banquet. Eat lean meat, well cooked, hot, with a spicy sauce. And you can have suckling animals if you like. And fish, except the wet ones. And by wet we mean wet in terms of the theory of humours. Pungent and flavors, including pepper, leeks and mallow. Among pulses, not beans or chickpeas or lupins. Among fruits, you must keep off dates and bayberries. But plenty of other remain. You can have 8 baths in the course of the month, so long as you soap yourself with aloe vera and a touch of myrrh. Finally, drink lime tea from time to time. A decoction, that is, of the flowers of the lime or the linden tree. I suppose for the emperor and his guests and his hostages in the room of the 19 couches on the Christmas day, they would have some spiced wine as aperitif. conditum, a Latin name of the traditional liquid delicacy. The Byzantine Greeks adjusted their conditum under medical advice, incorporating different spices and herbs for each season. In winter, you might add spikenard, pepper, cinnamon, cloves and honey. Then the meal proper might begin with some fish dishes, in Classical way. Perhaps tuna, shortfish, bream, bass, red mullet. Fried fish was recommended in winter, coated in flour and with a hint of mustard. Now for the delicious meats. Theodore Podromus has told us hare and partridge. It's clear from Hierophilus that other game might be substituted as far as the dietitians were concerned. But the wild boar that he mentions would have offended the Muslim guests so the imperial table might have venison and gazelle, which uh, the latter was a a real delicacy in medieval Byzantium. The game was to be served hot with spicy sauce. But what kind of spices? Winter instructions are given by Hierophilus under January. The patrids might be best served with mustard, cumin salt and a dip of wine and fish sauce. Other spices to be used in winter were pepper, caraway, cinnamon, and spikenard, that's very exotic, I think it comes from Nepal. On the side, pea or lentil soup, flavoured with salt, olive oil and cumin. Among vegetables, leeks, carrots and perhaps wild asparagus. And a little dish of roasted garlic to rub on your bread, the finest bread of the palace bakery. Mallow, also recommended, which might be served as a garnish for the serving dishes. We know that fruit was served, and we know that the fruit of the emperor's table were kept chilled in an underground cistern until the moment it appeared in the dining room. The wine would be mixed fairly strong, half and half for winter. The wine that came to Byzantium was world famous, and on the feast day the sweet wines of Crete and Samos would be much drunk and celebrated on the table. So, uh, let's check some um, modern, traditional Greek recipes for Christmas. And I've got a few for you. Well, unfortunately, these recipes, they're very um, labor-intensive. It's Christmas, the celebratory, and they involve lots of different ingredients. It's not easy, I'm afraid. Christmas dinners are always special. So, firstly, we have the stuffed cabbage leaves with minced pork and an egg lemon sauce. This is... Um, A traditional recipe from the island of Corfu. And it's one of the best ones I've tried. And We have similar dishes in the north of Greece, of course. So for eight people, you need, um, obviously, a a nice tender whole big green cabbage, which are winter vegetables. And, obviously, you know Greek stuffed uh, vine leaves, but this is more of a summery thing. Or, if you can uh, preserve them, you preserve the young tender vine leaves collected from vineyards in May. The most tender and delicious fresh vegetable in Christmas is cabbage. So for eight people, get stuffing of 150 grams of um, smoked bacon or pancetta, Ionian island, and especially Corfu and so on. They have big influence from Italy, from Venice especially. They were under 400 years of Venice rule. Three tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, one and a half cups finely chopped onion, half a kilo of pork mince, One and a half cups of tomato. Obviously in the winter we'll have some uh, canned tomatoes. Two thirds of a cup of um, Carolina rice, which is Greek equivalent of um, short grains. Something like um, risotto rice, right? Half a cup of dry red wine. A pinch of um, chili flakes. Smoked chili flakes, uh, we call it Bokovo in Greek. Salt, black pepper. One cup of fresh and finely chopped parsley, and two thirds of a cup of hard Mizithra cheese, which is a hard, salty, grating cheese. Five spring onions, finely chopped. One and a half cups of chicken stock. And for the sauce now, which we'll make later, you need about half to one cup of chicken stock, depending on the thickness of how thick we want it. Half a tomato juice, half a cup tomato juice. One egg. 2-4 tablespoons of lemon juice half a cup of water 2 teaspoons of corn flour black pepper and 1 tablespoon finely chopped parsley So we start with our cabbage Get a big saucepan, bring the water to boil and add 2 tablespoons of salt While this is happening, with a sharp knife cut the cabbage hard and separate the leaves Fill another saucepan, or any other deep bowl with some cold water Plant now, in the boiling water, the cabbage leaves. Few at a time, you have the rolling, boiling water. Until they get a little wilted. Now if they're very big, about between 3 and 5 minutes. That's how long you boil them. Then, once they're ready, transfer them to cold water and then in the colander. If you do that in the previous day, make sure you put the leaves in the fridge, covered up, and that saves you a bit of time from uh, cooking everything on the same day. Cook the filling... In a large frying pan, sauté the pancetta until it gets a color, about 5 to 7 minutes. Add the oil and the onion and sauté and stir for another 5 to 7 minutes, until soft. Then add the mince and stir often for another 5 minutes. Add tomatoes, rice, wine, chili flakes and as much salt or as little salt as you want. Let it boil for a little while, turn off the heat and add parsley, cheese, spring onion and black pepper. To stuff the leaves... Once the stuffing is cold enough to handle, start making your dolmades. The big, very hard leaves, put them on the bottom of the saucepan in order for your dolmades not to stick while they're cooking. Take a bit of stuffing and place it in the middle of one leaf of cabbage. Fill in the leaf, one third of its surface. Wrap the edges of the leaf like a little package. Squeeze it in your hands gently so you will read most of the liquids. Do it over a bowl as you will need this juice collected later. After finishing one leaf, place it in the saucepan with the joint facing down. Once you finish with the big leaves, continue with the smaller ones and maybe use two at a time if necessary. You can make approximately two tight layers of stuffed cabbage leaves in the saucepan. Cover this with a fireproof dish so they won't move around when cooking and boiling. Pour over the liquid you kept when you squeezed the stuffed cabbage leaves, and as much of the stock is needed, just about enough to cover the leaves, not more. Put the saucepan on the hob to boil and then turn the heat down to simmer, very lowly, covered for 35 to 40 minutes. Keep checking if there's enough stock in the saucepan. Let them cool down then, completely, and then put them in the fridge for the next day. This way they will taste much much better. So to finish it off and make the sauce, 30 minutes before you serve them, put the saucepan with the dolma on the hob over a medium heat. Let them warm up for about 15 minutes. Put them on a hot, big serving plate and cover them with foil. Keep them warm. Meanwhile, in the saucepan, make the sauce with the stock and all the liquids together, no more than 2 cups. Add the tomato juice. Boil in low heat for about 5 minutes. Meanwhile, whisk the egg, 2 tablespoons of lemon juice and 2 tablespoons of water. In another small bowl, whisk the cornflour with 2 tablespoons of water and mix this with the egg. Whisking and stirring constantly, mix the sauce with the egg-cornflour-lemon mixture. Half a cup a time. You will need about one and a half to 2 cups of sauce to mix. Transfer this in the saucepan and bring to boil, whisking and stirring constantly until the sauce has thickened. Taste and correct the flavour with salt, andor or pepper or lemon. Pour half of it over the dormades and keep the rest for the serving plates. Enjoy! I've got some uh, from northern Greece, my home area, region, where, well, generally, we tend to think that Greece is a very homogeneous country. And sort of it is nowadays, unfortunately. A population that speaks the same language, follows the same religion, hence the culture and the people and the foods and traditions in pretty much uh, are the same. As I said, this is, on one level, this is true. And yeah, it's kind of boring and blunt if you think about it, if you're growing in this kind of environment. On another level, it's not true at all. We, the Greeks, sadly forget, or other more sinister forces sometimes, we're made to forget and leave behind our little unique traits, our different dialects, our regional dishes, our local customs and traditions, all of course for the contrived, artificial, modern, unified Greek identity. Ultimately, something like this is made up and isn't dynamic and pulsating. As a result, rather monotonous and perhaps overly patriotic focusing on surface, not substance. And um, if we want to broaden it up a little bit, aside from all the local, regional Greek identities, there is also different ethnic groups that used to exist and live side by side for centuries. My local town of Veria had a substantial population of Jews, Romaniota Jews, until the Second World War just 60 kilometers away from Thessaloniki and their Jews, which uh, Thessaloniki's Jewish people, population formed the biggest community in, in uh, post-World War I a population. In Varia. these people, these Jewish people had the tradition stretching back 2,000 years. Apostle Paul spoke in a synagogue in Varia when he came to talk about Jesus, and he said that the local Jews there were more noble than, than those in Thessaloniki. For they received the word with all the eagerness. Anyway, I'm obviously digressing a little bit, and obviously, Jewish people weren't in the only community. For 400 years, there was an Ottoman rule. We had Turkish and other Middle Eastern ethnicities settling in northern Greece during this period. The land was at the heart of the Balkans, so the Vlach shepherds' communities. Um, coming each season from Romania, with their thousands of sheep and goats, Slavs and Bulgarians, Albanians and many others. This melting pot of cultures and ethnic groups inevitably gave us a richer and more drinking cuisine. In fact, it was several distinct cuisines, each one with a unique character. And not only that, we tend to forget, again, how mountainous Greece is. A lot of communities and villages and people were isolated by nature and developed their own extremely local and seasonal peasant cuisine, with nature's bounty, or what leftovers were after the Ottoman governors took all the tax. Even in um, recent years, the last hundred years, in the 20th century, we had massive immigrations from Greeks from uh, Asia coming, and settling mostly in northern Greece, and in my homeland of Macedonia and uh, Thrace these um, well-born patrician asian minor greeks brought with them a rich tradition of baking sweets and desserts plus a more heavy approach to spices a heavy concoction of aromatics such as cinnamon nutmeg ginger and cumin that has now become a part of my region's culinary lore so yeah here are three dishes outside of the ordinary for a bit of a twist on christmas Beef with onions, raisins and paprika is the first one. And this one is called kapamas. It has a dozen different versions all over North Greece. It can be anything from a fragrant cinnamon-tinch lamb stew to a whole leg of lamb cooked in a large pot on top of the stove. But here kapamas is a deliciously rich and sweet beef dish, perfect for cold winter nights. So you need about two tablespoons of butter two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, one and a half kilos of bone-in beef solder or any other cut suitable for stewing, trimmed of fat and cut into large pieces, six medium onions, half halved and and thickly sliced, one heaping teaspoon of sweet paprika, salt and freshly ground pepper to taste, half a cup of golden raisins, and about one teaspoon of sugar to taste. From here is sort of... um, Straightforward, heat the butter and olive oil together in a large stewing pot or a dutch oven over medium-high heat and brown the meat on all sides. Add the onions, stir to coat with the butter and oil, then add the paprika and mix all together for a few minutes. Season with salt and pepper. Add enough water to barely cover the meat. Place the lid on the pot and simmer over low heat until most of the pan juices have been absorbed and the meat is very tender. About one and a half hours. Meanwhile, Plump the resins for 15 minutes in a small bowl of warm water. About 10 minutes before removing the meat from the heat, add the resins and the soaking water to the pot. Taste and adjust seasoning if necessary with sugar or additional salt and pepper. Serve hot. Another recipe calls for veal stewed with tart apples and prunes. Makes about 4-6 to six servings. You need half a cup of extra virgin olive oil, 1 kilo of small stewing onions peeled, one and one-third cup of all-purpose flour, salt and freshly ground pepper to taste, about 1.2 kilos of boneless veal solder, trimmed of fat and cut into stewing pieces, two bay leaves, half a cup of chopped fresh mint, about about eight or ten pitted prunes to taste, three tart green apples, perhaps like Bramley or something like that, Uh, peeled, cored and cut to one and a half inch cubes, and held in lemon water, so they keep, prevent them from going brown. So heat the olive oil in a large stewing pot, uh, medium heat. Cook the onions, stirring until golden and translucent, about 10 minutes. Remove the slotted spoon and set aside. While the onions are cooking, season the flour with salt and pepper and dredge the veal lightly in it, tapping it off any excess. Increase the heat under the pot to medium-high, add the veal and brown. Add the onions back to the pot together with the bay leaves and mint. Season with salt and pepper. Add enough water to the pot to barely cover the meat. Reduce the heat to medium low. Cover and simmer until the veal is tender. About one and a half hour. Add the prunes. Add the prunes to the pot and continue to simmer for 15 minutes. Drain and add the apples, simmer, covered for another 15 minutes. Drain and add the apples and simmer, covered this time for 15 minutes. Remove from the heat, remove the bay leaves, Cool slightly and serve. Okay, because we're talking about Christmas recipes, I'm giving you a bonus Christmas recipe from Lesbos. Christmas pork with chickpeas, chestnut, and spices. As we said, um, pork is one of the traditional Christmas mainstays. So it stands to reason that this, that this such as this holiday special from Lesbos, would evolve uh, with pork and flourish. The pork and the chestnuts is a very classic combinations from many cuisines, especially the French. And um, it's a hearty affair and wonderful and perfect for any winter table. So you don't have to do it just for Christmas, but it helps. <laughs> so for about eight servings, which seems to be a lot, so half the meat and the potato, and the only quantities if you want to make less, please. Uh, you need half a cup of dried chickpeas, rinsed and soaked overnight in water, about one third of a cup of extra virgin olive oil, one and a half kilo of boneless pork shoulder, trimmed and uh, fat, and cut into stewing pieces. Four cups of chopped red onion, salt and freshly ground pepper. Two cups of peeled, seeded, and chopped tomatoes, or canned tomatoes is fine. One heaping teaspoon of ground cumin, one tablespoon, one teaspoon of uh, allspice berries, two bay leaves, eight new red potatoes, peeled and quartered and one cup cooked and peeled chestnuts. So after you soak the chickpeas overnight, drain them. Place them in a large pot with cold water, a lot of co- cold water to cover them and bring it to boil, skimming the foam on the surface. Simmer over a low heat until slightly softened, about 40 minutes. Remove from the heat and drain. Meanwhile, heat a third of a cup of olive oil in a large casserole dish over high heat and brown the meat on all sides, stirring frequently. Transfer the meat with a slotted spoon to a plate. Heat another third of a cup of olive oil if you need. Then add the onions to the pot. Cook over low medium heat, stirring until softened and lightly browned 8 to 10 minutes. Place the meat back in the pot, season with salt and pepper. Pour in the tomatoes and enough water to cover the meat. And stir in the cumin, allspice, and bay leaves. Cover, bring to a boil, reduce the heat low. Simmer for about 30 minutes. Then add the drained chickpeas stir and pour in additional water if necessary, to keep the mixture covered. Simmer, covered, until the chickpeas are almost cooked, about an hour. Add the potatoes and chestnuts and continue cooking until the meat and the chickpeas are very tender, another 30-40 minutes. Obviously, while the stew is simmering, add water if necessary. Adjust the seasoning with salt and pepper. Remove from the heat, remove and discard the bay leaves, allspice berries, if you can't fish them out and serve hot. Okay, and that's it. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Have a fantastic time. And if you feel festive and joyous, do help the podcast by subscribing on Patreon for $3 a month, where you get all the podcasts early and ad-free. Of course, if you subscribe to any of the higher tiers and categories, you get more stuff, more bonus recipes and podcasts and so on and please 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 if you love me and if you love the podcast go on and uh, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from this helps the podcast grow and find new listeners i've been thomas dinas and this was the delicious legacy podcast see you soon